Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. New Testament scholar uh, Richard Bauckham uh, mentions it as commentary that the original readers of Revelation, they would have been constantly surrounded with like vivid images of buildings and statues and festivals, all intended to remind everybody in that culture that the empire of Rome was the center of the world and all meaning and power exuded from it. So what we constantly have in the book of Revelation is John trying to actually sort of provide counter images to that idolatrous approach, intending to like purge our imagination with how the world actually is and how it will be in order for us to live in the world as it is and make it through it. Revelation 4 and 5 are two chapters that constitute really one vision in two parts, and it's, it's a vision of heaven. And you have to understand that heaven to John is not some sort of world that's just out there. It's like another dimension to our world. It's, it's happening right now, invisible to our natural eyes, but visible to the renewed eyes and minds to see things as they are. God reigning and ruling on the throne in the midst of our experience in this world as we sit. So tonight, here's what I want to do. Do you, do you remember Charles Dickens' book, um, A Christmas Carol, when he takes Ebenezer Scrooge sort of outside of himself to see his full story so that he can go back into himself and relive his story. Tonight, what I want you to do is almost like us gather around, like we're back in elementary school. And let me take you through a story that walks with John through heaven. And I want to sort of invite you outside of yourself, but not just to see yourself in a new way, but to see the world and what has happened and what is happening and what will happen to the world so that you can live in it 
with strength, peace, and love. And on this journey, we're going to see three things that we're asked to do. Weeping, looking, and singing. So there's three things you, I, wanna, I want you to do with me as we do this. To weep, to look, and to sing. First, to weep. And the first journey I'll stop on the, on the journey is that it requires us to weep. And I know some of you are like, uh, thanks. I came here to sort of pause on my tiring life, not to sort of add to it. But it's really necessary for where we want to go at the end of this text in order for us to get there for you to weep. In verses one through three, the dominant image before us is the scroll. It's mentioned eight times in the entire text. And the scroll is sitting in the right hand of God, and we're told that it's sealed. In fact, it says it's sealed seven times. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the number seven is the complete number. It's the number of fullness. It's the number of perfection. So what we have is this scroll that's in the right hand of God, and it is completely and fully sealed. Now, what is the scroll? Well, we're told from the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel and what we can make sense of those texts and this one, that there's a scroll with writing on the front and on the back and on it contains God's divine plan for history of judgment and of redemption. And on it in the plan of justice, it is said on that scroll who justice will be unveiled upon and how it's going to be done. That is to sort of summarize, on the scroll, we get the answer to every burning why question in the world. For everyone who's ever sort of thought, explain yourself, God, it's all on that scroll. But the problem with the scroll is that it's sealed. See, a king would write on a scroll, and then they would roll it up, and then he would pour some hot wax on it, and with the insignia upon his ring, he would seal it suggesting that only he is able to open the one, open the scroll that he has tells is written. And John sees it tightly in the hand of God, knowing it has the answers that we all need in life. But standing next to it is an angel who proposes the problem of life to him. He's saying, who can open it? Who can solve this? It's sealed shut. And it's the loudest silence known to man. There's no answer. There is no plan to solve this. There is nothing given that will make sense of any of the mess that has happened in life. And justice will not be done. And no one can live that way. Even Frederick Nietzsche said that the only way to survive suffering and injustice is to get answers for it. But everything Everything hangs in the balance of someone being able to open this scroll and make sense of it. But the most chilling words in the entire book of Revelation is when it says no one could open it. Nothing can be done. And so John weeps. That's why he's weeping. And I wonder if that feeling has ever crept up on you. Have you ever looked at the world and everything unjust and broken and evil about it and worried that nothing will ever be done about it. That people are just going to get away with stuff. That people can do whatever they want and there's no answers for it. 
You know, yesterday was a year of Ahmaud Arbery's murder in cold blood. And, you know, his killers went 74 days without being arrested. A few years ago, the Equal Justice Initiative in, uh, I think it's Mobile, Alabama, uh, they revealed 700 names of people who had been lynched and killed in the 20th century. And every record of these people that they tried to find, the grand jury hearings, all of the uh, names and events around the cases had all been destroyed and erased as if the people who lynched and unjustly murdered these people not only did the evil thing, but they wanted no justice and record of it. I mean, sometimes when you stare at this, it's a little bit overwhelming. You, you know, three out of four people who were sexually assaulted, the cases are unreported. Someone does something evil and horrible and just nothing happens. What is your, what is your reaction to that? What is your reaction to living in a world where that happens? For John, it's to weep. But for most of us, you know, the feeling creeps up and we just turn to a distraction. We turn to our phone, we turn to Netflix, we turn to anything that can sort of help us numb the moments and be distracted enough to not pay attention to the details. But every time we do that, guys, we are losing touch with reality. And we're actually cutting off the possibility of hope when we do that. Do you remember the sweet little movie uh, Inside Out several years ago? It, it really, it's my favorite Pixar movie. It's not even close. And Joy, the character played by Amy Poehler, she discovers something amazing in that movie. Yeah, you know, in the first part, every time sadness perks up, she tries to push her out of the way. Uh, she says, like, don't touch that. Uh, it's like a special memory. Don't get your hands on that. Don't look at that. Don't, don't change that. But something happens two-thirds of the way through the movie that changes it for her. She stumbles upon this moment where the girl was playing hockey, and it was a joyful memory. But what she learns is that the most joyful memories that the girl has all originated in sadness. And what Amy Poehler's character learns is that in order to have profound joy, it's not possible without sadness. And Pixar teaches us this. You'll never be able to get the incredible joy at the end of this chapter that's told to us in verses 9 through 14 if you close your heart off from sadness. Because what we have here in Revelation 5, it's the destiny of the world, and it can change your destiny, but it will make no sense to you if you never, ever weep. And so the first thing you need to let yourself do in the world in order to begin to see the world in a new way is to weep. But we don't just weep. But secondly, the second thing we need to do on the journey is to look. So we don't just stay in our tears. Secondly, we look. The elder comes to John when he's weeping in verse 5, and he says, look, weep no more. In the ESV, it says, behold. This Greek word, behold, is translated in the NIV, look. This is the constant command of revelation. See, we don't see because we don't look. And John is told to look because he says there is somebody who can unseal it. There's somebody who can make sense of this mess. It's the Lion of Judah. And it's the root of Jesse. See, these are two uh, 
images mentioned in verse five that were both deeply rooted in the Old Testament. The line of Judah comes from Genesis 49. See, the root of David, it comes from Isaiah 11. And the image was there is that this uh, militant, mighty Messiah would come and to deal with all of the injustice, to deal with all of the, in the, the evil, to come to finally protect the oppressed and the marginalized and to put things back the way they are meant to be. And so John begins to have hope. And frankly, if you let yourself do it, you can't understand how much we actually long for this today in our culture. We speak so negatively about it, but you know, there is actually something pretty good about cancel culture. See, what cancel culture does is it draws out the desire that we have to not let anything go. Cancel culture has sort of said, hey, everything and everybody's life is on the table and it should have to be answered for. And there's a base note in all of us that sort of says, unless we do that, the world is fake. And so John finds out somebody who can actually deal with this in a just and fair way. And he hears, it's the lion and he's worthy to open the scrolls. I don't know if you've seen the Avengers movies uh, or the MCU movies. Um, In, uh, I think it's Age of Ultron, there's a great scene where they're hanging out in Robert Downey Jr.'s apartment in Manhattan. They're actually sitting around having drinks and Thor has this like cute, this hammer. I don't even know how you pronounce it. It starts with an M. But uh, he like dares everybody to try to pick it up and uh, nobody can pick it up. Nobody can do it. And he says, it's all because you're not worthy. But then you get to the uh, last movie, Avengers Endgame. There's this amazing scene where they're in the midst of the end of all wars. And they're wondering whether or not they're going to win the day. And Thor is, is almost about to die. And you look over and you see his hammer start to move. And no one can wield this hammer but Thor because he's the only one that's worthy. But then the hammer moves, it, it draws up, it goes across the screen, and Captain America catches it. And in my theater, when that happened, everybody erupted with a roar. Because what it was saying in that moment is, he is worthy to hold it. And John found somebody like that, and he turned and expected to see Captain America. He expected to see the lion, but in the twist of all twists, he turns and he sees a lamb. And there's two Greek words for lamb. There's one that uh, John uses when John the Baptist says, look, the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But there's another Greek lamb that sort of describes a baby lamb. And that's the Greek word that's used here. It says this little baby lamb. And it's not just a baby lamb. It's a slain baby lamb. And so John has to turn around and look in the most confused eyes ever to say, here's the one who's going to solve the problem. Here's the one who's going to fix it. The baby slain lamb. How can this be? But what we see here is that it is the baby slain lamb that can open the scroll and solve the problem of the world, that can answer it all. How? Because of two things that this baby lamb does. One, he brings, A, he brings healing for the world, and B, he brings healing for us. Look, the solution to injustice cannot be military wrath. 
Because if we let cancel culture go and it's not the slain lamb, what's going to happen is that we're going to create a spiral in our culture that's unsolvable. See, if God accepts um, everyone and there is no justice and universalism wins the day, you have to ask yourself, how is that a satisfying world to live in? Especially if you yourself have had injustice and brokenness and had evil things done. If they're not paid for, how can you find hope and joy in that and look for a God who does that? But at the same time, if God just levels out justice, like a military general, do you know what that will do to humanity? It will say gang violence is correct. Oh man, the, the hellacious life of a gang, like, you know, at USC, we're, we're so immune to this cycle that exists all around the world, but it sort of works constantly like this. Like if somebody does anything to your tribe, you, gotta, you know the system will not have any justice and do anything to make it right. So you yourself have to do it. So if somebody does something to your tribe, you go kill and take greater measures on the people who did something to you to make justice for it. And then those people get angry and vengeful and they return vengeance and they kill somebody in your tribe and then you feel injustice and so you have to take matters in your hands and the cycle goes on and on and on and on and on and if God just lays out justice and says the answer on the scroll is the lion who's just going to obliterate everything that's just an example in our culture that just says the only way out the only way to answer this is for all of us to take up matters in our own hands and take it out on people who did wrong to us. And it's a vicious cycle that will solve some problems now, but it will heal nothing. Um, I'm sort of on a movie kick tonight, so bear with me. Um, Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino is probably the greatest picture I've ever seen about why, why it needed to be a lamb and not a lion. In the movie, uh, he befriends this little boy, uh, Fael, who's being pressured by gangs and uh, to join them and do favors for them. And they'll, he won't do it. And so they use violence uh, to persuade him to join. They threaten it constantly on his family until he'll cave and join their gang. And uh, Clint Eastwood realizes uh, that this kid didn't want to be a part of the gang and something's got to be done in order to get him out of this cycle because the gang's not going to leave him alone and that will ruin his family's life. But if he joins the gang, then he's going to be sucked into this cycle of violence and that will ruin his family's life. So he wonders, how in the world can I get this kid out of this gang and save his life in a way that, I, that will protect him? Because he knows if he actually takes up violence and goes after the gang, then they're going to come back and hurt his family worse. So you're, it feels like an unsolvable problem. But here's what Clint Eastwood does. He goes one night and he calls the authorities and he says, come to this address at this time. And he shows up at the house and he calls the gang out. And you think it's about to be this incredible shootout. And they pull guns and they start talking back and forth. 
And then Clint Eastwood reaches for what they think is a gun, but it's really a lighter to light a smoke. And as he lights it, they open up fire and they kill him. And then the authorities arrive. And here's the irony that saves the day. (laughs) Is that the violence was ended with his own death and violence. But the only way to end it is not to take up violence, but to become the sacrificial lamb. It's a genius plan. And it's the only hope for healing in the world. See, if we want justice and we don't make it the lamb, that means everything that's ever been done wrong to you or around you is getting away with it until you do something about it. But if you turn and look at the lamb, what it means is that the justice of the thing that you need to be just has been done by God in the lamb and will be taken care of. And you can take your hands off your life and trust for justice to be done. It, the lamb brings healing for the world, but it also brings healing for us. See, it doesn't just pay for injustice, but it simultaneously opens the door for redemption. See, we don't have just one problem in the world. We have two, justice and redemption. Not just what will be done about that out there, but what, what's going to happen to me? See, we have lots of demands for answers for things done in this world, but we so rarely want to ask the question about ourselves. It's because we're obsessed with comfort, you know? We look at things in this world that are broken, that are unjust, and we're like, hey, I didn't do it. And that's usually enough for us. But the only people who can say that are people who have never been on the wrong side of injustice. Because when you have, you think, how in the world can other people just sit here and watch? See, there's something very important that we have to come in touch with that is crucial for us to apply spiritually if we're going to take this journey back to our life. And that's that passive sin is just as cosmically treasonous as active sin. As much as we want to do, we want to live with individual autonomy. It just doesn't work. The the idea of I'm responsible for myself would only be true if no one had actually sacrificed anything to help you. It's an illusion that's believable, and in good circumstances, it works, which is why it's so plausible at USC. But the reality is we need one another because we belong to one another. John Dunney famously said, no man is an island. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Look, if you begin to believe that you have not participated in the injustices in this world, Do you understand that that's one of the most dangerous illusions that you can bring into life? How do you think it sounds to the rest of the world in their poverty and pain when we say, it's not my problem? I wasn't involved with it. But if you'll look at that, then you have to ask, what can be done about that? What can be done about me 
in the fact that I haven't given more money, that I haven't taken my free time to do more about the poverty and the homelessness just here in LA, that I haven't done more about mental illness on our campus, that I haven't done more about loneliness on our campus, that I haven't done more about child trafficking. Do you understand a couple years ago was happening just there on Figueroa at the corner by the CVS? Is it really sufficient to live in a world and just say, not my problem, I wasn't participated in this? What can be done? The lamb can. See, the lamb answers it because he made that thing right and he purchased you. See, what the lamb does is he puts the demands of justice and the openness of acceptance all in one answer. See, all the wrong things in this world and that all the different cultures in this world and all these people, how do we, how do we account for all of this? What do we do about everything that's wrong out there? And then the idea of, do we really think everybody else should just go to hell and, 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 and they should just pay for everything? How do we solve justice and acceptance? See, if God honors acceptance at the exclusion of justice, then he, is unju- then he fails to be just and righteous and in the worst atrocities in life were just, quote, a part of life. But if God honors his justice at the exclusion of acceptance, then we all have a mirror we can't avoid and we'll know for sure that we are totally alone in this world and there is no hope. But you have to look. The slain land is God's justice and he is God's love upheld in one beautiful moment that solves the scroll. And the world makes no sense unless you have both of those. And so John looks. See, he weeps, he looks, but thirdly, everybody with him, they sing. See, this is the last part and it teaches us how to bring it back to into our life. See, the first half of this text we see John describe what the lamb does, but the second half shows us how everybody reacts to what the lamb does. See, when the problem of the world is answered by the lamb, there is only one reaction, it's to sing. And you need to understand how the text is reading, is that they are singing now. This is not just they saw it happen one time and they sung. This is myriads of people, which means people are in the presence now of God singing with their lives. See, there's a song you can take back into your life. There's a song that makes your life. There's a song that dominates how you'll live your life. But this song has two stanzas. If you see the lamb, you have to take in your life. And it's this, life is upside down and life is a masterpiece. See, when John describes the lamb, he says, it has seven eyes and seven horns. Seven, remember, is the perfect number. The eyes represent wisdom, the ability to see everything, the ability to know everything. And the horns represent power. And so what we're told here is that this little slain lamb is the essence of wisdom and power. And it's sort of saying this, the way to have wisdom, the way to have power is the way of the slain lamb. The way to have wisdom, the way to have power is upside down. It is backwards. It will always be against every instinct you have. If you want the answer to the dilemmas you face in life, you have to go the way of the lamb upside down. Let me explain this a little bit. I mean, in every possible relationship, at some point, people are going to look at one another and wonder, 
if the other person is going to realize it's their fault. You know, like, I wonder if he's going to admit it. The other one's going, I wonder, I, I can't tell her this. She'll never forgive me. Um, we don't trust one another. And so we cope by blame, playing the blame game. You did this. No, it's you. No, it's you. No, it's you. And the cycle goes on and on and on and on. And we're always willing to sacrifice intimacy and friendship and other kinds of relationships for self-protection, doubling down at every turn of the vicious cycle. And there's only one way out. Do you know the way out? It's to begin to live life upside down. It's to begin to choose humility. See, there is a way to deal with justice and to make things right and the way to heal things, but it will always be the downward way. See, we have got to work for justice, but we have to do it the way of the lamb through grace and humility. You know, nobody has really modeled this better than Martin Luther King. There's a story that one night he was out speaking somewhere and got a call that his house had been bombed with his wife and daughter. He ran from the event, got there, there's a rush of people that have both had guns ready to attack and ready to defend on the, the steps of his house. It was a very tense, scary moment. And King walked up and he said this, do not panic. If you have a weapon, take it home. We cannot solve this through violence and hatred. We must love the ones who hate us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across time. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. That is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Look, the song, if you see the lamb that you have to live, is in every problem you have to know the solution is up, life is upside down. It's the only thing that will heal. It's the only way forward. But the other stanza that we have to sing is that life is a masterpiece. See, you want a song that will both empower you and give you perspective to make it in light of everything unjust and broken going on in the world. The way forward is to sing life is upside down, but the way to stay is to know life is a masterpiece. See, the creatures are surrounded this slain lamb and they have joy where each moment is actually getting better than the one before. The stanzas are growing longer and the songs are growing more and more powerful. And John moves through every possible creature in the creation, and they all are captured by this. And this is pretty remarkable, because the first time we read about the lamb being slain in the Bible, no one on earth appreciated it. You know, Jesus, he died alone. Evil thought it had totally conquered and won the day. But when we see him again here in Revelation 5, we see him as the slain Savior, and everyone and everything has unending appreciation and adoration for it. See, evil, it did not thwart the plan of God. It didn't undo the plan of God. It played a part in the ultimate plan of God to make all things right and to unseal the scroll because life is a masterpiece directed by God. And you, you know what this is saying? Is it saying that the ultimate destiny of life in Christ is everlasting joy? I mean, have you ever had moments where you just go, not what I'm going through is sad. I'm not sad, but life is just sad. It's not just there's bad things in my life. It's all bad. Look, 
what this text is asking you to do is in those moments, take the journey of Revelation 5 into it and remember that, listen, all of the evil is going to be justly undone and redeemed. And the the sign of that is the slain lamb showing us that life is going to be a masterpiece. I mean, the ending, it has begun, and it's invited you into it. And you know what it is, is that it will end in a dance. In that movie I mentioned earlier, Avengers, later on, after the war ends and evil is destroyed, there's something beautiful that happens that really is a picture of of really the whole Bible, if you haven't seen it, here's the Captain America story. And in the first movie, he falls in love with this woman named Peggy. And they said that their first day, date is going to be this dance on a Saturday night. It's 1942, so hang with it. But he has to cancel because he has to sacrifice himself on a plane that has a bomb on it that's going to destroy New York City. So because it's Marvel movies, he wakes up in 2012 And Peggy is this old, dying woman. She has Alzheimer's. She can't make sense of things. And things are never right. The the two of them can never get together until the last scene in the saga. The world is put right. Evil is put away with. And Captain America can do anything that he wants now that everything is finished. And what does he want to do? He wants to dance. The whole saga ends with him going back in time and finding the woman Peggy and them slow dancing. Look, wherever you are spiritually tonight, how do you want all of this to end? Not just your life, but all of life. What Revelation 5 is saying is that all will be made well in a dance. And friends, that is happening right now. Look at the lamb and start singing Life is upside down. And when you get discouraged, it ends in a masterpiece with a dance. Let me pray. Lord, so much wrong with the world, so much wrong around us. I pray that whatever anybody's going through, Lord, that the, the cry of justice would be satisfied here by the Lamb. Lord, help us, help us to weep, help us to look, help us to sing all of these songs in Christ's name. Amen.